In a world where shortfalls in governmental and international responses to global challenges are glaring, non-governmental organizations step in to bridge the gap. Providing critical services and support, these organizations reach the most vulnerable, often overlooked populations, bringing not just aid, but hope. At the forefront of this humanitarian effort is the International Rescue Committee, led by David Miliband. Founded at the behest of Albert Einstein in 1933, the IRC has become a beacon of relief and recovery for those caught in the crossfires of conflict and disaster. As the world focuses on the war on Gaza, identified by the IRC as the world's deadliest place for civilians, the dangers also extend to those trying to help. Gaza ranks as the most dangerous place for aid workers, presenting significant challenges for organizations like the IRC to reach those in desperate need. Navigating the intricate dynamics of global politics involves critical questions. The engagement with Hamas, the pursuit of peace in the Middle East, and the role of major powers in conflict resolution. On this episode, we're joined by David Miliband. As the former UK Foreign Secretary leads the IRC, his insights offer a roadmap for understanding the necessary actions to address the crises in Gaza, and also in other regions, Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ukraine, and beyond. David Miliband, President of the International Rescue Committee, talks to Al Jazeera. David Miliband, President of the International Rescue Committee, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Let's start with Gaza. It's a war we cover extensively on this channel. The IRC is involved. It's trying to deliver aid. What are the challenges it's facing? Well, first of all, I think it's important to say that the coverage that Al Jazeera is giving to the Gaza crisis is well-merited and is very, very important because it's vital that the facts and the reality and the agony of the situation on the ground in Gaza is broadcast accurately to a wide audience. Uh, the International Rescue Committee is a global humanitarian organization and we've been absolutely committed to doing everything we can on the ground in Gaza with our local partners to make sure there's some relief from the war without ever forgetting that the only way to give absolute protection to civilians in Gaza and to ensure that aid is delivered, that the injured are treated, is for the fighting to stop. Now, while the fighting goes on, we're still committed to the humanitarian imperative. And you use the phrase, deliver aid. Uh, that's true in the sense of procuring medical goods, delivering medical goods, trying to support hospitals uh, and uh, other health facilities, also trying to support civilians um, with economic support. But as well as delivering aid, we are delivering people. Uh, we now have the third emergency medical team sponsored, supported by the International Rescue Committee and our partner, the Medical Aid for Palestinians. Uh, our third emergency medical team made up of international doctors uh, surgeons, orthopedics uh, specialists, anesthesiologists, they are in uh, Gaza at the moment working at one of the hospitals. Uh, as I say, it's the third medical team. They're working under extraordinarily difficult conditions. 
And you asked about the difficulties, and of course the biggest difficulty is that the war is ongoing. Mm. Uh, but access, getting them in, getting them safe, getting them operating is a massive challenge as well. I mean, it's also the deadliest place in the world for aid workers, isn't it? More than 150 UN workers have been killed since the start of this war. Has the IRC uh, suffered casualties? We have not suffered fatalities, thank goodness, uh, amongst our own uh, staff, but there, we did have injuries from a missile strike on a guest house. And obviously the danger to aid workers is shared with the danger to civilians. You've mm. rightly flagged the terrible uh, number, now 29,000, I, I would say a minimum of 29,000 because, of course, tragically we fear that there are many more under rubble and elsewhere as yet undiscovered. Uh, I think it's important to say as well that while you're, you're absolutely right to flag that Gaza is the most dangerous place in the world to be a civilian uh, and to be an aid worker, I've just come from South Sudan and what's happening in Gaza, while terrible, is not uh, the only place in the world where it's dangerous to be an aid worker. South Sudan, you use the figure 150, and that's why I just want to make a global point. 150 aid workers have been lost in South Sudan as well in the mm. last year. So this is uh, a global phenomenon as well as a local uh, phenomenon, and it's terrible on all fronts. Absolutely. I mean, the IRC is, is present in more than 50 countries where there is crises, and we will touch on a number of those uh, in uh, the course of this interview. I just want to uh, focus on Gaza for a little bit longer first, though, because you said the only thing that really needs to happen in Gaza is for the war to stop, for a ceasefire, an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. We know, of course, that the US has just vetoed that at the UN Security Council. The UK abstained in that vote. So how on earth do you get the ceasefire in Gaza? Well, you, you're right to, to, to highlight the need to stop uh, the fighting. Uh, as humanitarians, as a humanitarian agency, we can relieve the suffering. But in the end, to end the suffering, we need politics to come into play. And at the mm. moment, politics is getting in the way rather than facilitating the end of the suffering. You mentioned successive attempts at the United Nations to bring relief. Uh, that is at the moment gridlocked. And obviously our greatest urging, our urging every day, our urging in every meeting, our urging in every statement, is yes to respect the humanitarian imperative and to remind you to respect humanitarian law. Humanitarian law says that civilians have a right to protection uh, from violence, and civilian and international humanitarian law also says that civilians have a right to humanitarian aid. But as well as asserting that, we argue at every opportunity that the conduct of the fighting means that the only way to offer proper protection to civilians, the only way to guarantee not just the flow of aid but the restoration of basic infrastructure is for the fighting to stop. And that's a plea, an urging, a demand that we make continually because we can do so on the basis of what we see. We're not a political agency, but we do have the opportunity to bear witness to what we're seeing. And the testimony of our doctors, the testimony of our staff, the testimony of our partners, the testimony of our clients, and I would say the testimony of our staff in the region who have friends and relatives in Gaza, is that the fighting has to stop. I, I'm speaking to you uh, from Amman, 
uh, where I am here for a couple of days. I had the opportunity to meet with some of our staff who have lost relatives in Gaza. They've mm. lost friends in Gaza. They're linked, they're tightly linked, uh, our staff, to the situation in Gaza and to people in Gaza. And part of my job is to relay their agony to a global audience, but also to decision makers, because the suffering is absolutely intense. And the rights of the civilians in Gaza are not being respected. And that's something that um, we abhor. You've said in the past that when Americans want to put the squeeze on, they can put the squeeze on you. You said that if they want something, they can make your life tough. And, of course, you've been in a unique position where you can see that uh, with relations between the US and the UK. So my question is, why are they not now doing that on Israel? Well, I think that the best answer to that is that you have to ask the Americans uh, about how the discussions are ongoing. As you know, there is a simple part to this and a complicated part to this. The simple part that I speak to is that the agony and the suffering and the loss of life in Gaza is unconscionable, that mm. the um, scale of the loss um, is, is there's, a, there's a simple humanitarian principle, just as it's important to say there was a simple humanitarian principle that what happened on October the 7th is unconscionable, that uh, as a humanitarian agency, we stand four square behind the idea that the suffering of civilians is never justified. That's the simple part. The complicated part, as you know extremely well from the region, is that history and politics is bound up with the suffering of the Palestinian people, and the political solution uh, is, has all manner of complexities to it. Uh, I think that if you ask the American, the American negotiators, if you ask the American um, diplomats, if you ask the American politicians, but also, frankly, if you ask Qatari politicians, if you ask uh, Emirati politicians, if you ask Saudi uh, politicians, they'd say that there are many layers to the political solution. And my point would be, from the humanitarian perspective, is that we have to be able to do two things at the same time. From a humanitarian perspective, there has to be a fulfillment of the imperative to stop the violence, but there also has to be a plan for the future. Uh, and that's a, a double imperative that exists. OK. I mean, most of the world, though, agrees that enough is enough. There needs to be an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. The US is very much standing out on its own on this, and the UK is standing behind it. I mean, what does this do to the UK's standing in the world and the US? Well, obviously, we're living in a, not just a divided world, but in a world that is becoming more divided. And it's become more divided since October the 7th. So in, in very direct answer to your question, uh, the consequences are further global division at a time when the world can ill afford this division. I mean, the Middle East can ill afford this global division. And frankly, the wider world can ill afford this division because there are so many global risks at the moment. And those global risks are being exacerbated by the geopolitical division that we are seeing. It's been on display uh, this week. What I can do is speak to you from the current position I had, not from the former uh, position mm. I had. But what I can offer is urgency um, a, a, an imperative 
because every day that the war in Gaza goes on, it exacerbates those divisions. It makes the, pol the politics more difficult, not less difficult. Uh, David, if you'll let me, I, I just want to take you back to when you were Foreign Secretary uh, of the UK. You, you came to the post in 2007. Should you have engaged with Hamas after it won the election in Gaza in 2006? Well, I think that the, uh, the situation by 2007 had moved on uh, quite fast. And obviously, the, um, the first, one of the early things that I was dealing with was the 2008-9 Gaza conflict. Mm. Uh, the ceasefire was broken in December uh, 2008. Uh, and it was my role to negotiate very hard and urgently to bring the ceasefire resolution that was eventually passed in the first week of January 2009 uh, to a conclusion. Now, the, the conflict carried on for 10 days. Uh, a whole range of people, led by the Norwegians, I think, at the time, were speaking to uh, Hamas. Uh, the fact that the war wasn't finished uh, for 10 days after the conclusion of those negoti negotiations cost lives. Um, but it wasn't for lack of engagement. There was failure to follow the resolution on both sides. It taught a number of lessons about the need to address the root causes of the conflict. It, it taught lessons about the way in which diplomacy can, can help, because there was a very significant uh, Arab uh, presence and engagement, but there was also very sustained um, Western engagement, US, uh, UK, France, uh, on the Security Council at the time. And the imperative that I explained to the House of Commons after that vote was to make sure that those lessons were learned. The trouble is they weren't learned, though, were they? Because the root causes were never addressed. Completely. You're, you're absolutely right to say that. That it, it would be wrong to say that there was a barren period of diplomacy uh, after 2009, but there was extremely limited diplomacy after 2009. Uh, President Obama appointed George Mitchell as his special envoy. Um, in his second term, he asked um, John Kerry to undertake an exercise. But really, the period uh, since 2009 has shown much more limited political effort, especially in the last few years. Um, in the last five or six years to address those root causes compared to the previous period. I mean, the obvious point to make to you th that I made many times, I think including on your channel, is that the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative was a very, very significant piece of uh, diplomacy and it had urgency and energy and engagement behind it um, really for the seven or eight years after that. But the, the last... Um, 10 years have had extremely limited So diplomacy. where did it go wrong? And the tragedy is that there are tens of... Th ten, well, I mean, I'm a great believer in diplomacy. I'm a great believer in tackling uh, difficult problems. And so you, you're, you're right to point out the, the costs of that failure of diplomacy. What I and my organisation are doing at the moment is having to try to minimize the the damage on the ground and that's what we do not just in in Gaza we have uh, programs in in Jordan in Lebanon in Syria and in, in Iraq and in Yemen uh, that's the humanitarian enterprise to which I'm uh, dedicated at the moment but obviously 
the worse the politics, the greater the humanitarian burden, and it's not a burden that we can, we can, ever, we can never substitute for politics. We can mitigate and minimise and limit the consequences of the failure of politics, but we depend on politics. Do you and does the International Rescue Committee now advocate for Hamas to be engaged as we are looking to the future, to the end of the war in Gaza and to the future of a state of Palestine? Well, we're a humanitarian organisation. We advocate for the rights of the civilians who we serve and we advocate for their rights when they're caught up in conflict. Uh, we also, in the most general terms, always argue that, that whatever the heroism and the effectiveness of what we can do in war, it's nothing compared to what the way people can live in, in peace. And when I said earlier that it's desperate for the people of, uh, of the Middle East that there is a viable political plan, I I'm speaking to a moral imperative um, but I, we don't get into, we're, we're not an organization that can go into the details of peacemaking. Uh, peacemaking is something that's both skilled and the essence of politics and diplomacy. What we can urge is that the peacemakers go about their business with urgency, not just in this region but elsewhere, because as I think you've covered on your show, there are 54 conflicts going on around the world. This is one of the most acute uh, and it's desperate that the peacemakers get working. Let's uh, move on to Sudan. This is the world's largest displacement crisis. More than half the population there needs support and protection. Uh, the IRC is warning that 7 million people could face extreme hunger by June. This, sadly, is a story that has slipped out of the headlines. Can a catastrophe be averted? Well, yes, a catastrophe can be averted. So thank you for uh, recognising the importance of the issue while without in any way diminishing uh, the, the, the cause and the urgency in Gaza. Sudan is, as you know, a country of 25 million people. And the fact that there should be 7 million people facing famine is a, a catastrophic reality, but it's not an inevitability. Uh, Sudan um, has been consumed by civil conflict led by the government and the rebel group, the RSF, the Rapid Support Force, uh, since last April. I, I was in South Sudan, which is a country with its own enormous challenges. South Sudan is number three on the IRC's emergency watch list for this year. But 500,000 people have fled to South Sudan uh, despite its own problems. One and a half million people have fled to Chad, mm. and obviously large numbers are caught up in the fighting inside Sudan. Now, uh, Sudan also suffers from the deficit of diplomacy. Uh, there is a very limited process to try to stop the fighting uh, led by the, the government of Saudi Arabia, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, but the people in Sudan are paying the price for the failure of diplomacy and are the limits of diplomacy. Uh, you ask, can a catastrophe be averted? Yes, it certainly can. Uh, how can that happen? First of all, that the parties to the conflict fulfill their legal and moral obligations to allow aid to flow. Secondly, that the funding for the World Food Programme, uh, as well as for organisations like the International Rescue Committee, is there, because at the moment the funding is not there. You said there's a lack of funding. The UN Emergency Aid Chief Martin Griffiths last year said that their appeal was less than half funded. 
how do you get those funds in these situations? Because as you say, it's diplomacy and it's funding. And if you don't have the funding, that catastrophe is not going to be averted. Well, there's a very stark message here. And it's not just a message to the traditional donors in the Western world. It's a message to donors, frankly, in the Gulf as well. Because when we talk about the responsibilities that come with wealth, that doesn't just apply to those historically rich countries, it applies to those newly rich countries. And the UN aid architecture can't just depend on the traditional donors in the Western world. I think I'm right in saying that for the United Nations High Commission on Refugees, they depend for about half of their income on the US government. That is not a sustainable long-term solution. It needs those newly wealthy countries uh, to fulfill their responsibilities. And I would argue they are best fulfilled not just by bilateral support uh, from charitable organisations in the Gulf to charitable organisations on the ground, for example, Red Crescent, however good their work. It's vital that the newly wealthy countries are part of the multilateral system. Another massive conflict that is uh, getting underreported is Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, our correspondent in Goma there says hundreds of thousands of people are once again on the move, trying to escape uh, uh, intense fighting that's already killed extraordinary figures here. Six million people and uprooted six million people in its 30-year conflict. Interesting that the IRC has been on the ground there for the entirety of this conflict. Can you give us an idea of why it has gone on for so long? Well, thank you for raising that. And there's obviously a danger that your viewers just... They're exhausted by mm. the conflict in Gaza. When we start talking South Sudan, when we talk about Democratic Republic of Congo, there's a danger for organisations like mine that people just say, oh, I can't cope with more of these. Let me just... Uh, speak to the Democratic Republic of Congo issue and make a, a global point. In our emergency watch list, which is the uh, watch list of the top 20 countries facing humanitarian crisis, those countries, which include the Democratic Republic of Congo, they constitute more than 80% of total humanitarian need. And I would argue that's a more manageable way of thinking about the humanitarian burden that exists around the world. In the DRC, what do we see? We see, first of all, the splintering of governing authority. That's true not just in DRC, it's true elsewhere. Secondly, we see external support for civil conflict. There are inter what's called internationalised civil conflict. Thirdly, we see the duration of conflict extended. And fourthly, we see acute burden borne by women and girls because the emergency hits them harder, and you know that from the Middle East conflict as well. Now, the roots of this speak to a very deadly combination. Poverty, misgovernance and conflict going together and feeding off each other. And the challenges in uh, DRC show that when humanitarian issues are not addressed, that exacerbates the political instability. And that's the cycle that we've seen, we, the International Rescue Committee, have seen in the DRC over the last 30 years. 
Uh, I would want to talk more about DRC, but as you say, there are so many crises going on in the world. I do also want to bring up uh, Ukraine in the short time that we have. Uh, Ukraine has just secured significant funding from the EU, but of course the US is now looking shaky. Biden's struggling to get an aid package through Congress. President, uh, former President Donald Trump, possibly the next president, indicating that he would attach conditions to an aid package for Ukraine. Can the West afford to give up on this country? Well, I, I, I think about this from the perspective of the civilians on the ground in Ukraine and the civilians who are refugees uh, in Europe. They can't afford the world to give up on mm. their right to choose their own government and to have the sovereignty and territorial integrity of their country defended. And I think this is a global issue, not just a Western uh, issue. If the world becomes a place where the borders of countries are just decided by fiat, and I say this conscious of, the, of this region, uh, the, the world then becomes ungovernable. And Ukraine is not just a European problem, it's a global problem. Uh, those around the world are right to say that Europe should have a principled stand on global issues, not just on the Ukraine issue. But I think it's vital that we don't end up in a situation where the rights of civilians in Ukraine are traded off against the rights of civilians, mm. whether in the Middle East or in Africa, that you've been discussing too. And the fact that the Ukraine issue and the Gaza issue have divided the world rather than united it behind the imperatives of living up to international law seems to me to be a tragedy. When you look at Ukraine, the Global South uh, saw how quickly the US, the West, the EU, the UK mobilised to help uh, fight against Russia, to take in refugees, and they, of course, compared it to conflicts in their own neighbourhoods. Do you feel that uh, the West, when I say that, I mean the EU, the US and the UK, they lost some moral standing there in the world? Well, I wrote about this uh, last year in Foreign Affairs because I said that Ukraine had united the West but divided the world. Mm. And the allegation that the West was giving better treatment to refugees in, uh, from Ukraine than it was to refugees elsewhere is one that has sapped uh, the unity that I think is important if humanitarian crisis is to properly be addressed. And so I think there's a very stark warning for politicians and citizens across the Western world that they need to live up to their responsibilities. And that is a very challenging global uh, agenda. It's one that reflects a different global balance of power, but it's one where principles of social justice and international law are absolutely vital. The warning for the Western world is very, very clear, and the principles that they need to live up to are ones that they have enunciated, but they need to live up to them. But are they doing that? I mean, we're looking now at the climate crisis, again, being a total divider of the world. The record of the West since 1990 as the dominant powers of the global system has involved some achievements, but it hasn't been good enough. And that has uh, corroded uh, confidence. Uh, the West needs to make sure that its own house is in order, but that its contribution to the global system is also in order. That's partly financial, it's also political, but it's also geopolitical. It's also about how it conceives of a fair sharing of the world's responsibilities. We're living at a time of growing global risks. Those are health risks, conflict risks, and you mentioned it, climate risks. Mm. Those with the greatest resources have the greatest responsibility. And I am passionately committed to the idea that the Western world, the democratic world, if you like, needs to do better. David Miliband. President of the International Rescue Committee, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you very much.